Today we continue our study of the love of God. It is a study now that we have been working through for the last 10 weeks. We will end it in the next three. But as we continue this morning, the title of my message is that love moves with grace. When we began the study of the love of God, I made it abundantly clear that the love of God is not something that is simply meant to be taught academically, theoretically, or even simply theologically. The love of God is also meant to be experienced in one's life. And I personally believe that when one has an encounter with the love of God, they're never the same again. And as I continue this morning in this series with you, I have discovered in my interaction with people, including my interaction this weekend at Heritage Fest, that when you begin to discuss the love of God with individuals who are not Christians, who are not believers in Christ, they have either one of two reactions, and both of them are extreme, and both of them are incorrect. They're incorrect concepts of the love of God. The first one is, I don't see how God could ever personally love me, or I don't believe that God loves me at all, because if he had loved me, uh, or does love me, how could he ever allow me to go through the suffering in which I have? That's one concept that a non-believer would carry. The other concept that I find non-believers carrying with them is this assumption that God automatically loves them. Well, of course God loves me. Why wouldn't he? Oh, let me tell you why he wouldn't. Well, God loves me no matter what I have done, and it doesn't matter what I have done, and therefore, when I die and go to heaven, it doesn't matter if I believe in Jesus or not. His love will allow me to enter into the kingdom of God. Is that true? If that was true, then there would be no purpose for the death of and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Does God love them? Yes, He does. And He's demonstrated to both of those groups of people His love through sending His only begotten Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. When I find myself in conversation with believers, I often discover that they too, in some cases, take the love of God for granted. And I believe that the reason for that is, is because they don't really understand the process in which God had, or had to uh, move through to bring them into a saving relationship uh, through Christ with God the Father once again. They don't understand all that God has done on their behalf. And therefore, not only do they really not truly appreciate the love of God, but often, therefore, then they do not appreciate the new life that they have in Christ, the fact that they are a new creation in Christ, and therefore, they don't seem to have a true understanding and therefore appreciation of the grace of God. And that is what I want to address this morning as, again, I have stated that the title of this message is Love Moves with Grace. We need to understand how the love of God moved through the grace of God to save us who were in a desperate situation and incapable of doing anything to save ourselves. 
This is a reality that not many want to uh, acknowledge. They feel that for some reason they have earned or deserve God's grace, God's favor, God's love, God's salvation. But that is just simply not the case. We were not worthy of it. We have done nothing to earn it. We have done everything to reject it. And we have done nothing to obligate God in saving us. It is a complete work of God on our behalf. And as we look at the Scriptures today, and as we take a look at the incredible process in which God brought about to bring fallen man back to a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, I begin this morning in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Because as I had stated from the beginning of this series, we are looking at not only the love of God, but how the love of God has impacted my personal life over the last 32 years. I believe it is the love of God that has radically changed me and allowed me to become the man of God that I have become today. And again, please trust me, I am still a work in progress. I have not arrived. I am not perfect. All you have to do is ask my wife. That being said, I do know that I'm a lot farther from where God originally rescued me. That is that boy, 16 years old, on that porch in Elk Grove Village that night that the gospel was presented to me and the love of God confronted me right then and there where I was at. And it's how the love of God confronted me that we will discuss this morning. But let me begin by first stating that as a young believer, I remember coming and reading through the gospel of Luke and coming to the reality through the story posed to us in the gospel of Luke of a sinful woman it's more than a story, it's a historical account of a woman who came to Jesus during the ministry of Jesus, rejected by all but accepted by him, who was forgiven much and as a result loved much in return. And I remember reading this as a 16, 17-year-old young man, just sitting there in my parents' home on the couch, reading this story and thinking of myself. That the love of, that I have for God is a result of the fact of the realization of how much God has forgiven me of all that he has forgiven me of. And that is why I love him, not because I have mustered the love in and of myself, but because he has first loved me, and then I reciprocate that love to him, knowing how much he has forgiven me. Now, if Christians would walk with the mindset of understanding of how much God has personally forgiven them, two things would happen. Number one, they would be quicker to forgive others. And number two, they would love the Lord in a greater dynamic means than they currently do. Let us begin in verse 36 of chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke. And this sets the stage for what we'll be looking at in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... 
when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of anointment. And standing behind him at his feet, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who it, of what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. This was a situation that just simply did not occur in Judaism. The Pharisees were supposed to not only represent uh, the people to God, but more importantly, represent God to the people. But the Pharisees, the religious rulers of that time, had walled themselves off from certain people of the society. People that they considered to be, as aptly said here in our text, sinners. Individuals who are willfully living in disobedience to all that God has commanded and said. Individuals who are living for the lusts of their flesh, living for the pleasures of life, living for this world without any regard to the covenant of Moses or to God himself. These individuals were shunned by the religious leaders, and the religious leaders believed that certain interaction with these people would actually defile them, making them personally incapable of going before God. And so this sinner coming to Jesus in the middle of this dinner was something that just did not occur, and the religious leader calls Jesus out for it. Not openly, but in and of himself, he, he's thinking these things. Well, if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is and have nothing to do with her. But we see the reaction of the woman to Jesus. We see the reason that she was there. She fully knew that she was a sinner. She fully knew that she was far from God. She fully knew and realized that she needed the forgiveness of God to be able to return or have any kind of whole life once again. And the only place that she could ever find that since she had been excluded from the religious system there in Judaism, there in Jerusalem, there in the temple, was this individual named Jesus that was possibly approachable when all other means had been closed to her. And so she did the only thing that she could do. She simply lied at his feet in a position of asking for mercy and grace. And it is this scene in which Jesus now will instruct the religious leaders. The religious leaders did not believe in their hearts and minds that they were in need of any kind of forgiveness or any kind of salvation. They believed that they were righteous for their keeping of the law or keeping, therefore, of the traditions of the religious leaders that are found in works like the Mishnah or the Talmud. They didn't believe that they needed Jesus in the sense of forgiveness, in the sense of mercy, in the sense of grace. But this woman fully understood where she stood before God. And this was her only course of action. This is all she could do. This is all that she could hope for. This was her one and only opportunity in her mind to find the forgiveness that only God could give her. In verse 41, 
Jesus now answers the teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them loved him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, of whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now I have entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with the tears with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You give me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You have not anointed my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Those who are forgiven much love much. Those who are forgiven little love little. Today in our culture, the individual in the United States of America does not believe in their personal depravity before God. They feel in some way that their sins have been justified or they have justified their sins in some way, I should say. And therefore, they're not in need of God's redemptive hand, of His forgiveness. And when I speak with Christians, they often don't seem to have a true understanding of what God saved them from. They don't understand that they were in a position where they could not save themselves. When we read the word saved in the New Testament, it is indicating that God saved us from a position in which we could not save ourselves from. So so think about your nightmare position. For some, it is floating and dog paddling in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. That'd be a scary position to be in, wouldn't it? knowing that you could only try to save yourself, but eventually you are going to fail and you are going to die. For others, their nightmare position is being buried alive. That's a horrible thought, isn't it? Sorry to bring it to your attention. But for some, that is their nightmare position, a position in which, again, they understand that they cannot save themselves or are in complete need of someone else saving them. The third night burn position, think of one falling out of an aircraft. I don't know about you, I've flown oh, many, 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 many times, but all of a sudden I've realized that 38,000 feet is high up there. And looking down, I am amazed at how high I'm actually from the ground. And that fall, unbelievably, 
If you're in mid-fall, nothing can save you. You cannot save yourself. Many today in our country believe that we have warranted or merited some type of favor from God by our goodness, by our good works, by our personality, and therefore God has extended salvation to us because in some way we have merited it. But the reality is is that we have done nothing to merit the grace of God. There is no good work that we can present before God that would justify us before God. There is no good deed. There is no um, personality that we can make an argument for that says, oh, because of who I am, Lord, you need to save me for eternity. It is a complete and utter work of the grace of God that is offered to each and every individual here on this earth. We need to understand that. One individual told me at Heritage Fest that he believed that Christianity was like insurance. Going to church was like having an insurance policy for the moment you die. And I began to realize that he didn't really consider eternal life until that day in which he would be required to consider to do so. You know, we have homeowner's insurance, right? How many of you will go to your filing cabinet, bring out your homeowner's insurance policy, and read it every single night before you go to bed. No, we wouldn't do that. But if we came and we saw that our house had been moved by a flood, destroyed by fire or a tornado, that insurance policy would make all the difference in the world. Christianity is not an insurance policy. It is not something that we can just simply go in and purchase. It is not something that we can just then therefore file away uh, until the moment that we uh, die and therefore be sure that we have eternal life. For if we were to apply for the assurance of God, we would find that the underwriters would not sell us the policy. Isn't it amazing that the only time you can apply for health insurance most of the time in our nation's history is when you're healthy? Because when you need it, now you can't apply for it because you'll be denied it. They won't want to insure you. Oh, you're how old? Oh, really? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Oh, you you have a cold? Mm Mm-mm, that ain't gonna work. You're coughing? Oh, that could be, nope. We have to understand that we are standing before a God who is not obligated in saving us whatsoever, and yet He has chosen to do so. We have done nothing to earn or to warrant His love, and yet God's chosen to love us. We have done nothing to earn or to deserve the grace of God, and yet He's extended that grace to us. God is not obligated to do anything on your behalf, but because He has... We should not take that for granted, but thank God and praise God for who He is and therefore truly appreciate the new life that we have in Jesus Christ and not simply squander it on the same old type of living as we lived prior to coming to Christ. One who is forgiven much loves much. One who's forgiven little loves little. Now there's a interesting uh, point about that. The individual who thinks they're forgiven little is an individual who truly does not know himself. 
and doesn't understand who God is and the holiness of God. Again, we all want to believe that we are better people than we actually are before God. It is not until we read the Word of God that we define uh, how unrighteous we personally are as individuals. And as a result, we are in dire need of salvation. This morning, as we turn now to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll spend the remaining portion of our time. Paul is desiring that each and every one of his readers here in Ephesus would understand the incredible beauty of the grace of God, the incredible love that God has for us, how good the good news of the gospel actually is for you and I. But to do so, he has to put it against the darkest backdrop or canvas or context that he can To truly appreciate God's love, His grace, to truly appreciate the salvation in which He has provided on our behalf, to truly appreciate the new life that we have in Jesus Christ and living it for His glory, we must first and foremost, before truly appreciating and understanding and, and responding with complete gratitude to the good news, we must first completely understand the bad news. When you go to purchase a fine diamond or stone, they want you to see the brilliance of that diamond. They want you to be able to see the different facets of that stone and to be amazed by it. And if they were to take an individual diamond and simply place it on the glass counter in front of you, you would not nearly be as impressed with it as maybe you should be. So what do they always do? They take a dark surface, often black felt or dark blue felt, and they put the diamond on top of the felt to allow you to see see the incredible nuances of that stone and to appreciate it for what it is. But you wouldn't do so if you didn't have that black velvet behind it. Now, to appreciate the gospel, to appreciate everything that God has done on your behalf, to appreciate the new life in which he has given you, we need a black, dark backdrop. And that backdrop is introduced in the first two words of chapter 2, verse 1. Those words are, and you. You are that black backdrop. You are the bad news. You are the one that is truly allowing the gospel to radiate and to show all of its beauty. We need to understand the position in which we uh, found ourselves that we need to be saved from to truly appreciate all that God has done on our behalf. His love moving through grace to save us. He says here very clearly, and you, the first word used here is dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Meaning, trespass is a word where one willfully disobeys what God has said to do. 
And as a result, you have sinned against God willfully. That's what trespass means. It means, you know, you willfully step onto something that you're not supposed to trespass upon. Sin means missing the mark. Each and every one of us was born with a sin nature which then leads us to trespass the Word of God because spiritually we are dead before God. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. And being dead, we can do nothing to save ourselves, Nothing at all. This is the state that we found ourselves in. Now that dead state has led us to walk in a certain manner. The word walk there in the Greek could be better translated into an English word that we rarely use any longer, but it means to meander. There are people who walk with purpose, and you see them walking with purpose. They're either walking for exercise, or they want to get to their destination as quickly as possible. They're walking with purpose. They're walking with a priority But then there are others who simply meander. And this is very evident if you go to the mall, isn't it? You have those, like myself, who park, go to the one store that I need to go to, and then leave. There are others that I often have to work around who are simply meandering. You know, they're going from store to store. I don't even know. Sometimes I wonder if they've even forgotten why they've gone to them all altogether. And I wonder how many of them actually leave with things that they never set to get in the first place. And they're just meandering from one point to another without any purpose, direction, and so forth. They're just meandering, often just killing time. Paul sings that those who were dead in trespasses and sin are meandering through this world without purpose. And as a result, two things have occurred. Number one, he says it here very clearly, that they're following the course of this world. I remember Chuck Smith once saying that any dead fish can float downstream. These individuals think they're going in their own direction. They think that they are uh, the masters of their own fates, They think that they are setting the course. They think they're being sporadic. They think that they're being spontaneous when in actuality the path has already been placed before them. And as Jesus says, that path is wide and many travel it. But in the end of that path is destruction. Today we are looking, our culture is looking for identity and individualism, but yet that identity found in individualism is always umbrellaed by conformity. I want to be an individual. I want to be different, but as long as it conforms with the ideas of this world, I'm fine with it. They're not free at all. They are simply following the course of this world. But not only the course of this world, they don't understand who has architected the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The world system is not an accident. It has been architected by the prince of the air, which the Bible clearly tells us is Satan. 
These individuals want to believe who are not believers in Jesus Christ that they have their own destiny in mind, that they are living their life to their fullest and so forth, but in actuality they're dead, merely existing. They're floating downstream with all the other fish, even though they're looking for personal identity, they're looking for personal individualism, but yet they're still conforming to the overall world's understanding of who they should be. Not knowing that it is Satan who has architected and created this world system to keep us from God, to allure us with the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Paul says that as a non-believer, we were moved in this way. We were following after the course of this world. We were following after the prince of this air, of the air, the spirit who is now currently working in the sons of disobedience. You know, the Bible just doesn't only call individuals who are, are unsaved dead. Listen to the words that are used. The Bible calls those who are unsaved blind a slave to sin, a lover of darkness, sick, lost, an alien, a stranger, a foreigner, a child of wrath, under the power of darkness. This is the position that these people are actually in, but believe that they are truly free from the tyranny of God when they themselves are in the greatest bondage that they could possibly be within dead in trespasses and in sin. When God created Adam and Eve, He created them perfectly. Adam and Eve, body, soul, and spirit. When Adam and Eve fell, the spirit died, leaving just soul and body. Therefore, an individual would conduct themselves out of the lusts of the flesh, out of the thoughts of the mind, contrary to the things of God, all walking as sons of disobedience. On the wide path, it is easy to think you're going in the right direction because you're assured of that direction because everybody else is going in the same way you are. But Jesus says the path to eternal life is narrow, it's rough, it's difficult, and very few find it. Paul says that we were once one of these people. Among who, verse 3, whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. One of the great mistakes that people often make is that they feel that as a non-believer, one who is not following Christ, they believe that the love that God has for them is just going to automatically exempt them and atone for them and for all the sins that they've ever committed when in actually they are under the weight of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a reality. It is something that should shake us to the core. We who are Christians have been spared, have been saved from the wrath of God due to the fact that Jesus Christ uh, experienced that wrath for us on the cross in those three hours of darkness in which he hung there, separated from God, uh, 
He was judged by God. He was uh, uh, then died due to the sins placed on him at that moment in time. But then again, because of his sinless nature, death could not hold him. And on the third day, he rose again. But we were all going in this direction. We were all under the weight of the wrath of God like the rest of mankind. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, many of us want to believe that we see clearly. Today, the greatest lie that is found in academia is this, that we can see and know more apart from God than we can with God. That is a lie. God in no way hinders our intellectual development. He allows us to see things clearly through His Word. If we are blind, therefore, how can we observe what is true and what is false? We can't. That is what the ruler of this world has done to us. But as a result, we have escaped this incredible position of depravity through the grace of God. I want to remind everyone that the Bible clearly articulates what is sin before God. Many want to believe that ignorance will be a pass concerning sin before God. Well, God, I didn't know that was sin, and therefore I can't be responsible for that in which I have done. Well, the Bible clearly tells us what sin is before God. First of all, we were born with a sin nature that has has already placed us in the position of wrath before a holy God. But then we've also trespassed, we have violated God's word in our life in one way or another. Before you were a Christian or even after you were a Christian, how many of the Ten Commandments can you say you have kept consistently? None of us have. None of us can apart from Christ's perfection. And even then we still can't keep them. It is Christ who has kept them perfectly and we allow God to wrap his righteousness around us called the imputation of righteousness upon the individual. But notice with me what Paul writes here. I want to read these passages quickly to you. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, he says very clearly, Paul, that is writing, or do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor rival, uh, revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say, such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. In Galatians 5, 19 through 21, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I have warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In the very last book, Revelation 21, 7 through 8. 
The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and sexually immoral, sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their positions will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Listen, we were in a dire position before God. And you may say, I never murdered anybody, but Jesus would then ask you, have you ever hated anyone? For hatred in your mind is, is murder committed within the mind. Well, I've never committed adultery. Jesus would say, have you ever lusted after another? Because one who lusts after another has committed adultery already. We were all in a dire position if it weren't for the grace of God extended to us through the love of God. This love that he has for us has manifested itself in a grace that has been given to us, offered to us. This grace is unmerited favor. It is God offering something to you and I that we are completely undeserving of. We have done nothing to warrant it, and He is certainly not obligated in which to offer it to us. And our simple response can be only that, that we receive it. The word grace throughout the New Testament can mean several different things, but it means unmerited favor. It means a gift in which God has given unto us. Now let us remember it is God who initiates. It is us who respond to that in which God has initiated to us. And notice with me, if you turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 2, two words here. And if you're into defiling your Bibles Go ahead and highlight and underline these two words. After placing the gospel in front of the the backdrop, which is you and I, to show how glorious and how good and how majestic it actually is, listen to what Paul writes. Knowing that we at one time We're under the sway of the wicked one, following the course of this world, following and carrying out the desires of our flesh, the desires of our body, the desires of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Look at these two words, but God. But God, hallelujah, you know. But God intervened. Why? Because he's rich in mercy, meaning that his mercy, he is wealthy with mercy. He wants and desires to show mercy. Throughout the Old Testament, he continuously begged Israel to come back to him. He desired to show them mercy, but because of their rebellion and their stubbornness and their unwillingness, he needed to judge them according to the covenant in which he had made with them. He needed to chasten them more specifically as children who found themselves disobedient before God. But God is rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. This is what God's saying. That even in your fallen state, God chose to love you and to extend grace to you. And all you need to now do to receive the gift in which he's extending to you is just that, receive it. You do not warrant it. You have not merited it. You have done nothing to earn it. It is a free gift of God to you. And God gives you the grace to receive it. 
And as you receive it, he says here very clearly, even when you were dead in trespasses and sin, I'm sorry, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Number one, he resurrects the dead spirit that is within you when you come to him. Jesus said to the woman who he met at the well, he says, you must worship me in spirit and in truth. And the only way we can worship God in spirit is to be born again. Second, not only does he make us alive together with Christ and by grace you have been saved, but he has raised us up with him. The term raised us up with him in the Greek means that he has now set us on a course in a new life. We are not to live the new life as we conducted ourselves within the old. He's given us a new path to walk upon. It's difficult, but as he has stated that I will never leave you nor forsake you, I will walk every step of the way with you during this difficult period of time. As Paul wrote, he said this, He said in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, Then if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your mind on things that are above and not things on the earth. We are no longer to live in the same manner in which we once lived. We have now been given new life with God in Christ Jesus. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, he says, we are now a new creation in Christ. But not only that, notice also with me, not only has he raised us up, verse 6, with him, and then he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's one that Christians are not aware of, that in our new life in Jesus Christ, not only Has he delivered us from the bonds of spiritual death, from the bondages of the flesh, but he has also released us from the tyranny of Satan. He has given us a new life now to be lived for the glory of God as Jesus Christ is now our Lord and our Savior. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords. He's the head of the body of Christ. And we now walk with him and we are no longer under the the slavery of the wicked one. That's what it means to be seated with him. We have a position of authority in Christ. God calls us heirs with Christ in Romans. God shows us that we are now princes and princesses of the kingdom of God. We have a new life in him. The question is then, why would you live like a pauper in which you once were before? I'm not talking about living in the wealth of materialism. I'm talking about living in the wealth of righteousness. Living in, for the glory of God. I personally have said this many times. I've gave Satan 16 years of my life. I'm not giving him one more day. And it's because of the grace of God who has made us alive, who has resurrected us. He has given us new life. He has seated us with him in Christ. Even though now today we are still waiting for that moment that we are in heaven with the Lord for all eternity, that reality has already become and has started as a reality within our life today. Verse 7, so that the 
coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches. Not only is he, not only is he rich in, in uh, mercy, but also in grace, in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I have no idea why God has been kind to me, but he has. The beautiful book of Romans, Paul states very clearly and subtly as he's writing through and everything that he is writing, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Also in Romans, he goes on to say in 6, 4 through 8, that we were buried therefore with him and been baptized into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we had been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For we, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Of course, for all eternity. And how is all of this possible? Look at verse 8 with me. This is beautiful. As Paul is writing here, that the love of God has been moves with grace within our life, this unmerited favor. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is by grace that we have been saved. Paul makes the argument in Galatians that if any type of work, any type of activity is added to grace, it is no longer grace at all, but becomes a debt or a wage that is earned. We have done nothing to earn our salvation before God. Absolutely nothing. For by grace you have been saved, and the conduit of that grace, the the manner in which we receive it is by faith. We just accept it. That's all we can do. He offers us now salvation through Christ, in Christ, and we simply need to receive it or to reject it. He cannot make this offer if Christ had not done what he has done. If he had not died, carried the sins of the world on his shoulders, shown to be the perfect sacrifice and that he had never sinned personally and therefore was raised on the third day, demonstrating that the sacrifice had been accepted by the Father. God could not offer this grace if Jesus Christ had not done what he has done. But now he can offer this grace to you and I. And we can receive it or we can reject it. It says here clearly that this is not of ourselves but a gift of God. What is the gift that is being referred to here? Some believe it's the grace. Some believe that it's the faith. But grammatically, we know clearly that it is the manner of salvation in which God has prescribed in which to save us. That is the gift. That's the gift in which God has given us that we have in no way merited any type of warranted favor for. It's, a reno- it's not a result of works. There's nothing I can do to save myself. I am floating in the sea, simply waiting to die. I am buried alive. I am falling from that airplane. There is nothing I can do to save myself. It is a work of God. I simply see- need to receive that which God has done for me. 
It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, verse 10, if you will, as we close. Notice with me in verse 10 that our salvation was given to us for a purpose. Our salvation has been given to us. This new life has been granted to us for a purpose. It is not something that you just merely tuck away in your filing cabinet and worry about and, uh, when you are on your deathbed prior to going to heaven. There's a purpose in which God has saved you for, to make you a member of the body of Christ. He has purpose within that membership, within the body of Christ, that you may serve and glorify Him in some way, shape, or form. He has not saved you to be a spectator. He has not saved you to ride the bench. He has saved you for a purpose. And this is where so many, you know, they memorize verses 8 and 9. For grace you have been saved by faith, and that not of your own. It is a gift of God, lest any man shall boast. I wish they would memorize verse 10. In the Greek construction, verse 10 is part of the same thought as 8 and 9. And so separating it is incorrect grammatically. Now, people want to boast that they have earned God's salvation in some way and therefore there is no need for them to serve God in any way. I've been confirmed as an individual by a church and therefore I am saved. I've been baptized. I'm a member of a church. I attend church. I take of Holy Communion. I try to keep the Ten Commandments. I live by the Sermon of the Mount. And therefore, I have earned the salvation, and therefore, I have no need to consider serving God in any way, shape, or form. That is a byproduct to those who want to believe that they've earned their salvation, that they have no necessity to serve God or glorify God in their life because they've earned it. Well, let me tell you this. Confirmation doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't save you. Church membership does not save you. Church attendance does not save you. Church attendance makes you no more a Christian than standing in a car, a garage makes you a car. Holy communion in and of itself does not save you. Trying to keep the Ten Commandments, that's an impossibility. Living the, the, by the Sermon on the Mount today, I wonder how many people even know the Sermon on the Mount. But these are the top seven reasons that people still give to this day to believe that they've earned, earned and warranted salvation from God. And God says, no way. But because I have saved you by grace alone, through faith alone, you therefore have been purposed. Verse 10, notice this with me. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You have not become a new creation due to the good works in which you have performed. Because you are a new creation, you now are set in the course to do good works. But these good works do not save you. They simply demonstrate that you are saved. This is the argument James brings forth in James chapter 2. But the word workmanship is a very interesting word. The Greek word poema is used here. It's the same word where we get the word poem from. Where God takes 
you from the disorganized, jumbled set of words in which you once were in sin and in death. And as you've come to him, he now creates a beautiful poem articulating the work that he has done in you, allowing you to demonstrate that work as he works through you and allows the world to see that he is real and true because of the work that has been done in and through you. You become a poem unto him. Paul uses this word with great affection. This workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One wrote very clearly, he said this, he said, in other words, God has a blueprint for every life. Before our conversion, he mapped out a spiritual career for us. Our responsibility is to find his will for us and then obey it. We do not have to work out a plan for our lives, but only accept the plan that he has drawn up for us. And I say to you, each and every one of you here today, that God has a plan and purpose for your life. It's already been written. And by seeking him, he will be more than willing to show you what that plan is. Now, I don't want to leave you just there. I'd like to give you six things that you can do today to begin to discover that plan that God has for you. Number one, this is really important. We need to confess and forsake sin as soon as we are conscious of it in our lives. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's got to begin here. It's got to begin with repentance. It's got to begin in here at this moment. We need to go before God and ask him a very serious question. We need to ask of him to do something within our lives that, are, that can be very uncomfortable. David asked it. He said, search me, O Lord, to see if there be any wicked way in me. Now, don't pray that lightly because God will show you. And you will soon discover that you are still not the person that you thought you were, all that in a bag of chips. God will show you very clearly that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And it's only by his grace that we can be who he has called us to be. Number two, be continually and unconditionally yielded to him. This can be found in one simple statement a statement that Jesus made the night before his crucifixion. Not my will, but your will be done. You are relinquishing control of yourself by allowing yourself to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And in so doing this, continually and unconditionally, surrendering and yielding yourself to him each and every day, you are saying, Lord, interrupt my ideas, interrupt my objectives, inter interrupt my goals, my desires, and do in and through me all that you desire to do. Number three, study the word of God to discern his will. That's where you will find it. And then do whatever he tells us to do. Reading it's one thing, doing it's another. Today we are inundated with information, aren't we? 
And everywhere we look, we are inundated with information from every possible nook and cranny, every possible place. And then we have the internet on top of all of that. And of course, everything on the internet is true, isn't it? And doesn't need to be vetted in any certain degree. But the Word of God is always true, and that should be our first resource in any kind of consultation and the willingness to discern God's will. It has to begin with the Word of God. And then whatever He tells you to do, do it. Number four, not an option, mandatory. Spend time in prayer each and every day. This is not a last resort. It should always be the first option of every individual believer to spend time in prayer with God each and every day. Number five, seize opportunity of service as they arise. A pastor once said that it's much easier for God to move something that's already moving than to move something that is stationary or static. If you see a need, fulfill the need and let God move you to the place in which he desires you to be. And lastly, number six, cultivate the fellowship and counsel of other Christians. God prepares us for good works as we fellowship with one another, as we encourage each other, as we stir each other up for good works. We have been saved for a purpose. God has rescued us from the incredible despair and depravity in which we found ourselves, that we were perfectly incapable of rescuing ourselves from. He has saved us. He has made us alive. He has raised us up. He has seated us with Him by grace through faith alone. And now He says, serve me with the new life in which I am giving to you through my Son, Jesus Christ. The love of God moves with grace.